I'm going to ask you this morning uh, to turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, not, not Genesis chapter 1. Um, that's what's printed in uh, the order of worship. Now, we're going to be there, but we're not going to be there today. We're going to be there next week. So next Sunday, we are going to begin a sermon series. I suppose you could call it a long sermon series um, throughout the book of Genesis, beginning next week with chapter 1, verse 1. Um, But today we're in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. And so as you're looking, turning there to Luke chapter 5, I want to ask you a question this morning. Don't answer it out loud. I guess you could if you wanted to, but I would just, in your own mind and heart, what, what is your greatest need? What is it that you, that you want the most? For yourself? Or maybe for, for, for someone in your life? What is it? What is it? Is there, because I'm sure there's got to be some things you think, you know what, this is what I, what I most need, what I most want. If I were to have this, it would change everything. Don't you think about what, what is that greatest need? Because our passage today does, talks about a great need, and Jesus meeting great needs. And so, you know, before I read the passage in Luke 5, you know, Luke chapter 4 and 5 are both, um, you know, they're really kind of a, a, the way that the gospel of Luke introduces uh, Jesus' public ministry to us. You know, in Luke chapter 4, we see his, Jesus being tempted out in the wilderness, and then we see him preaching in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, and they choose to Try to, try to stone him and throw him off a cliff. And then he goes on to begin his public ministry of, of healing the sick and casting out many demons. The beginning of Luke chapter 5, he calls his first disciples. The passage that uh, immediately precedes our passage today, he heals the man who was full of leprosy. Then we're going to see today that he heals a, a man, a paralytic, who is carried to Jesus on a mat by some of his friends. And so in Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 5, and in particular in this passage we're looking at today, it tells us a lot about who Jesus is, about the type of Savior he is, about the the nature of the salvation that he brings, and about who it is who needs this salvation. So there's a lot here in this passage, and and it it is a passage that you'll, you'll see in just a moment that is perhaps familiar to many of us, maybe even most of us. And so my my prayer is that the familiarity of this passage to us, our perceived familiarity with it, would not cause us to miss what what it actually says and the way that it actually challenges us. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. On one of those days... As Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. 
And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love and for our good. And so we're going to look at this passage today under three headings. Okay, three headings that we can think of simply as three, three words. Friendship, faith, and forgiveness. Friendship, faith, and forgiveness. So first, friendship. If you look with me at verse 17, on one of those days as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees, teachers of the law, were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So a large crowd's gathered to hear Jesus teach and to see his miracles. And we see that many of them were um, religious leaders from as far away as Jerusalem in the south who were there in Galilee in the north to investigate Jesus. Remember, right? I mean, Jesus had already begun to, to heal and to cast out demons and you know, whenever you do that sort of thing, and, and, it, and it's real, I mean, I haven't done it, but whenever you do that sort of thing, you know, the, the news spreads. People hear about it. So folks had heard about this, and so they come to see for themselves, to investigate Jesus. And now Mark chapter 2 tells us the specific setting for this true story was a little town of Capernaum, which sat right on the Sea of Galilee. And so in fact, you can and you should visit um, the, the remains of first century Capernaum, if and when you ever visit Israel. And so whenever, whenever you go, you know, you'll, you'll see that there's a synagogue, the ruins of a white synagogue. And we're told that it's a, it's a late fourth century synagogue, but you can notice that it's built upon some black stones, a black foundation, darker foundation. And that darker foundation is the remains of a first century synagogue one that Jesus would have visited and would have taught in. You know, that Capernaum, Peter's hometown. We're also told that this is the town, that the hometown that Jesus adopted for himself during his period of ministry in Galilee. So I say all that to say this is a true story that really happened in a real place, okay, in Capernaum. Then we see in verses 18 to 19, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Okay, now, this, there's a whole lot that happens in these two verses, and we're going to talk about how how, how crazy, okay, this, this plan that these friends came up with and executed is in just a little bit, okay? But, but first, I don't want us to miss 
this man being paralyzed in the first century. And I want us to run too quickly into the details of the story that we skip past, okay, what it must have been like to be a man paralyzed 2,000 years ago. To be a woman paralyzed 2,000 years ago. So one commentator helps us, you know, Think about what, what it must have been like, what it, what it could have been like, what this person's life could have been like. They say, imagine what life was like for this man, what it would mean to be a paralytic in the ancient world. His whole life lived on a mat, three feet wide and six feet long. Someone has to feed him, carry him, clothe him, move him to keep him from being covered with bed sores, clean him. He'll never know the sense of independence that we prize so fiercely. Nothing could be done medically, no surgeries, no rehab programs, no um, uh, treatment centers. Right, anyone in this man's condition has to go through life as a beggar, be laid by the side of the road, be dependent on people dropping coins beside him uh, to, to have money. And the, the author goes on and says, you know, perhaps this man dreams you know, sometimes in his dreams he has a healthy body, that he walks and runs and does good work, is married maybe, plays with his children, but then he wakes up and looks at the ceiling of a room he can never walk out of, looks at the body that holds him prisoner, looks at the mat that comprises his world, and knows that he'll never be free. Most likely he has no money, no job, no influence, no family, seemingly not much of a future, you know, he has this mat that he's confined to, and of course, the man in the story has friends, has some pretty, some pretty amazing friends. Okay, so think about those friends for a moment. You know, the friends are not the, the main part of the story, Jesus is, but what these friends do, I mean, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. It's pretty extraordinary. I mean, the story is also found in Mark 2 and Matthew 9, and, and so we know by looking at all the gospel accounts, there are four friends who bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. And we see that these men are very, very committed to the task. Very committed, right? They show up, and this little home is packed. Jesus is teaching. Everyone's there. Some are there, you know, for the miracle. Some are there to investigate what they've heard. But these men, they can't get in. They can't find a way in. And so what they do, they, they don't give up. They don't go home. They don't even wait for Jesus to finish. And then wait for him to come out. Instead, you know, what they do, I mean, you think about, I mean, this story, I mean, it really is, it's a crazy story. I mean, th these friends are fairly unreasonable, <laughs> extreme. I mean, think about what they do. I mean, they remove part of the roof to lower this paralyzed friend down in right beside Jesus. Okay, I mean, again, maybe you've heard this story many times before, or if you've read it, you know, because it's, you know, it's, in, it's in three of the, the Gospels. But listen, it, it wasn't any less crazy or, you know, irregular for this to happen 2,000 years ago than it would to happen today, okay, in, in, in your house. The next time you're hosting a city group, all of a sudden you heard some, you know, some scratching and some tearing up above you and stuff started falling down and all of a sudden there's a guy that came. I mean, this is not normal. And so think about it. These friends were willing to do this. And they're willing to do this even, even if it meant that they would probably have to pay the price 
for uh, the roof to be repaired. So when you think about these friends and what they did, you know, some pastors will look at it and say, okay, these four friends are a wonderful example of, of living on mission and be engaged in, being engaged in ministry and evangelism you know, to those who don't know Jesus because these four friends you know, literally bring their friend to Jesus. Other, other pastors will want to focus on how this is an example of the people of God loving one another well, living out their faith and loving one another well. Because when we're told later in the passage that Jesus sees their faith, and so these men have some measure, some measure of, of faith and belief that Jesus is or maybe might be the, the Messiah, the Savior, able able to perform these healings and these miracles and do this for their friends. So some think, okay, maybe this, is, this story is really about evangelism and witnessing and mission. Others think it's about you know, caring well for one another within the church. So I want you to think about it, okay? Which do you think it is? I'll tell you what I think. I think the answer is yes. I think it's both. Right, that we, we are called to, to love one another well in community, and we're called to evangelize the world. And we don't have to, and we shouldn't view these as two separate things. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room on the night of his arrest, the night before the cross, there with his closest disciples in John 13, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Or as Pastor Richard Phillips says, if we want the world to know that we belong to Jesus, and if we want the reality of Jesus to appeal to the broken and the lost in a cruel and loveless world, then we have to love one another. Right? Loving one another and loving the lost outside of our walls, these things go hand in hand. They, they work together. They're very much you know, two sides of the same coin, and we are called to do both. We never have to, nor should we ever choose between the two. And yet, loving one another, loving one another well, and reaching out to those friends and those family members that are in our networks of relationships, in our spheres of influence, it's often, it's often hard, and it's scary. And it very rarely just simply happens without us praying for opportunities, looking for opportunities, planning to make opportunities. See, to actually do this, to love one another well, and to reach out to those who would never on their own come into a place like this, it requires a commitment of time and resources and energy and creativity to work through barriers and challenges. It requires us to, to sacrifice personal agendas, to make adjustments to our schedules. And so what, what, I'm, what I'm heading towards here at the beginning of a new year is for us to realize that loving one another well and caring well for our neighbors and our friends and our family members who do not yet know Jesus, both of those things ought to be important to us. As we think about the new year, as we think about how we want 2024 to go, we ought to be thinking about how 
we cannot let little insignificant things get in the way of inviting people to join us at church. How we cannot let little insignificant things get in the way of inviting people to the next women's event or the men's steak night or the men's retreat or vacation Bible school or soccer camp or not letting little insignificant things get in the way from, from, from interjecting a, a, a Christian world and life view into the next conversation where we see there's an opportunity to do that. I mean, I know it can be scary, it can be intimidating, but it is always worth it. It really, really is. It's, it's worth it to walk by faith and enter into direct, loving, personal conversations which introduce our friends and our family members, our neighbors, our classmates, our coworkers to the real Jesus. Many of them have no idea who the real Jesus is. No doubt they've heard of him. Many of them have no idea who he is. So I want to ask is, what I want to ask is, will you commit to pray for God to give you the opportunity to reach out to three to five people? Three to five people. That means you can pick three, but three to five people in 2024. You commit to praying that God would give you the opportunity to, to invite three to five people to join you at church or at one of, the, uh, one of the upcoming ministry events. To be praying for God to give you the opportunity to share your story of how you became a Christian and how God changed your life and is changing your life with them. Be praying for opportunities with just a few people for you to be able to enter in, answer their questions, clear up some of their confusions and misunderstandings about Christianity, about who the real Jesus really is. Now, I know you may think, well, Richard, okay, it's easy for you to think about that because it's like your job and you went to seminary and you know this stuff and you do this stuff all the time. And it is, all those things are true. However, I promise you, you really do know enough to do this. You know enough about the Bible. You know enough theology. You know enough about Christ. You know enough about what he's done for your life to do this. And I know you know enough people to where you can pick three to five people and begin to pray and trust God to provide opportunities. So will you do that? Even today, will you think about three to five people even today? My guess is we all have three people. So that's friendship. Number two, faith. These four friends dig a hole in the roof. They lower the paralyzed man down into the house. And then Jesus' sermon is interrupted. But he doesn't mind at all. He doesn't mind at all. Now, I'll, I'll tell you something you may not know about me, but I, I, I don't get distracted very easily. You know, Alicia and the kids can tell you there was actually a time, you know, a few years ago um, in, in, in a house we used to live in. Well, so, the, okay, I'm going to tell you this is important. The, the wall that used to separate the kitchen from the den uh, was, you know, was taken out. And so there was just a, like a little bar that separated the, the living area and some chairs where I usually sat and the stovetop. So I kid you not, a few years ago, I mean, I was sitting there in a chair facing the TV, but away from the, the kitchen, and Alicia walks in, there's, there, there's, a, there's a fire raging just behind my head, okay, on the, the top of the stove. I had no idea. No idea. So, now, and the truth is, 
There's a lot of times where after a sermon, some of you will come up, or after a service, you'll come up and say, Richard, I'm really, really sorry I had to get up and do this. I'm like, listen, I didn't even notice. Sometimes I'm even looking at you and I don't even notice, okay, what you're doing, okay, because I, I don't get distracted. But, but I think I would be distracted, okay, if all of a sudden there was a hole in the roof and somebody was, you know, lower down. But that's not the case here, right? Look at verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. You see, Jesus sees their faith, not, not their mess, not the mess they've created. He sees their faith. You know, he's not focused on their distraction, but he's focused on their faith. He saw the faith of the four friends, and I believe the faith of the paralyzed man. And then Jesus tells the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. Now, that's a bold declaration, and there's going to be multiple bold things that happen in, in the rest of this passage. And we'll come back to those in just a moment, because this passage makes some, some really very clear and strong and bold statements and affirmations about who Jesus is. And we'll come back to those. But I want to think about faith for a minute. Think about the faith of, of these four friends. Think about the faith of that man, you know, lying on that mat, lower down through the roof by his friends. Okay, faith. Faith's a small word, a simple word, a very churchy word, a word that I've used a lot this service, a word, a sermon, a word that you use a lot too. But faith is also, it's also a big word. So I want you to think for a moment, how, how, how do you define faith? If a five-year-old child asks you, hey, what is, what is faith? I hear faith a lot. What is faith? How, how would you answer them? Now, see, you begin to think, man, okay, I don't know. If only, if only there was like a list of questions, you know, that people would ask sometimes, and then they'd be really good answers, something maybe like a shorter catechism. Maybe. You know, because question number 86, the shorter catechism asks, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And it gives a pretty good answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. It's a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. What, what a beautiful definition. We would receive and rest upon Christ. And notice the object. The object is Christ. We would rest, receive upon Him, in Him alone, no one else. See, true saving faith only has one object, and His name is Jesus. Do you think for a moment about the faith of this man, right, lying on the mat? Right? He had to have had some level of faith. Some level of, of hope, you know, no matter how small or weak or frail, faint, but some level of faith that Jesus could actually do what his friends were telling him that Jesus could do in order for him to go through with this, this crazy scheme by his friends, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, so much could go wrong, right? The man, the man could fall. His friends could drop him. The, the friends could fall themselves. I mean, the, this disturbance you know, could, could lead to some, you know, the vandalism of tearing someone's roof open could lead to some other consequences. But this man, this man's faith, no matter how weak, no matter how frail, no matter how small, had one object, and it was Jesus. And you see, that shorter catechism question says that faith in Jesus rests 
upon him alone. Right? Saving faith is not code for, hey, he worked really hard to, to earn God's love and favor. Okay? It's just the opposite. That it rests upon Jesus and his finished work of redemption on our behalf. It receives and rests upon Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf to save us. Think about what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, we're, we're saved by grace and through faith. That, that faith is the instrument by which we receive the grace of God in Christ. Right? It's not, it's not our faith that saves us. It's Christ who saves us by faith. See, that matters. Understanding it's not our faith, because whenever we begin to get that confused, that we think our faith saves us, not Christ, then we begin to think, well, I wonder if I have enough faith. I wonder if the quality of my faith is enough. I wonder if it's strong enough. But as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, even the weakest Christians with the weakest faith get the same strong Christ. You see, the salvation, saving faith, is a saving grace that receives and rests upon Christ. The object is what matters, not the strength of our faith. And you see, true saving faith, it's, it's by grace, it's not by works. And, when, and, and I mean, can't we see that this, this paralyzed man on this mat, confined to this mat, is he not the perfect example of how sinners like us must come to Christ? Right? Hopeless and helpless. Completely incapable of doing anything to, to fix ourselves, to clean our lives up. Right? This man knows he can't fix himself. This man knows that, that he can't try harder and do more. This man knows he can't promise, you know, God, I promise you that, that tomorrow I'll begin to do all these things differently. You know, if you'll just forgive me. Right? This man, this man can't even go to Jesus himself. He can't even get there. That his friends have to bring him. He's a perfect example of what we sing in one of the old hymns, that nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You see, if we're going to come to Christ, that's how we come. If you come to Christ, you come palms up, empty-handed. And here we have a man that I'm not even sure that he can raise his palms. I'm not even sure he can raise his empty palms. He had to be brought to Christ. And yet, he's willing to go because he's got nowhere else to go, and he knows that he's a debtor to mercy and to mercy alone. And so look again at verse 20. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. So the four friends, they brought their paralyzed friend for physical healing. Not, not for forgiveness, but Jesus sees that man's true need. And guess what? Jesus sees and knows your true need. In my true need, in our true need, no matter, no matter how you answer that question at the beginning of the sermon about what is it that you most need, what is it that you're most hoping for, most wanting for yourself or for someone else, so many times, so often the case, our true need is often much more 
and it's much deeper, and it's much greater, and it's very different from what we think we need. Okay, so we've seen friends, we've talked about faith, now we're going to talk about forgiveness. And we see that forgiveness was this man's greatest need. Now, forgiveness is not his only need, right? The man really is paralyzed, and and Jesus does heal him, right? The man gets up and he walks home. But only after Jesus meets his greatest need first, and that is the forgiveness of sins. Okay, now you could possibly ask, okay, well, Richard, I mean, how, how sinful could a paralyzed man really be? I mean, especially if, you know, this man had been paralyzed most of his life, maybe all of his life, and, and, and that's a good question. Okay, how sinful could this man really be? But it gets to the, 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 really the heart of what makes sin, sin. Right, and that sin is not just limited to the, the bad things that, that we do. I mean, this man couldn't do a whole lot. But our sin also includes not just what we do, but also what we say. And not just what we do and what we say, but also what we think. And what we desire. And what motivates us. See, forgiveness of sins was this man's greatest need. And forgiveness of sins is our greatest need today. It's also the greatest need of everybody in Houston. Right? Without the forgiveness of sins, then we will live and we will die in our sins. Die in our sins, separated from God, and spend eternity in hell. See, that's, that's what's at stake. That's why we must preach and teach and share the gospel Sunday after Sunday. That's why we must be reminded of the gospel over and over and over again. I mean, we, we have other needs that matter, but this is our greatest need. The question is, do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that forgiveness of sins really is your greatest need? You know, I don't know how you answered that question at the beginning of the sermon. I mean, we can think about what we need most, what we're hoping for most, for ourselves or for other people, and we can think of lots of good and big and important things like, you know, being healthy, restored relationships and restored friendships, reconciled marriages, or even having a good spouse, having children, having healthy children. Having an extra $100,000, right? Getting, somebody said amen. I, I think there might have been a staff member. I'm not sure. Okay, but, um, you know, get, getting a dream job, getting into the perfect college, and the list goes on and on. But the point is that without forgiveness of sins, we'll never be able to enjoy any of these other blessings in God, in our lives from God, right? I mean, even if we were granted our deepest wish and had our wildest dreams come true, without Christ, without the forgiveness of sins, it's not going to make everything okay. It's not going to make everything okay. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, and we ought to be honest, we know that. I mean, it might make a difference for a day, a week, How long do you think it would be if you were to get whatever it is you think you most need before the discontentment returns, before there's something else? See, forgiveness of our sins, our greatest need, Jesus meets this need for this man. 
And how? Well, Jesus has the authority and the ability to forgive sins. I mean, look at verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, see these Pharisees, they, listen, they know their Bibles. Now, their, their theology is right on this topic. They know that only God can forgive sins. Now, where they're wrong is that they don't realize that the man standing right in front of them is fully man, fully God. But they understand only God can forgive sins. They know that the Old Testament says things like Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? It's God who forgives. Or Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Right? They're right that, that only God can forgive sins, but they miss the point that the Jesus standing right there in front of them, fully God, fully man. Yes, only God can forgive sins, but Jesus is God. And then we see in verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? So here, Jesus, he's giving the Pharisees and the crowd evidence that, that he's no mere man. He's no mere teacher. He is the Messiah. He, you know, he, he reads their minds. He knows what they're thinking. He tells them this. And then Jesus asks in verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Okay, think about that, all right? It's a real brain buster here. Okay, which is easier? On the one hand, I mean, they're both pretty easy to say. I can say them, you can say it. You know, we can say these things. On the other hand, if you tell someone, rise and walk, then it becomes immediately pretty hard because now you've got to be able to, to produce the physical healing right then and there so everyone can see, right? On the other hand, saying your sins is forgiven you, your sins are forgiven you, is infinitely harder because only God the Son, the Savior, could say it and mean it and actually accomplish it. Right? In order for Jesus to say to this man, your sins are forgiven you, it is going to cost him his life. He's going to have to live and suffer and bleed and die on Calvary's cross and rise from the grave. So which is easier to say, rise and walk or your sins are forgiven you? Well, they're both impossible unless you are the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, unless you are Christ. So look, look how the passage ends. Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking about himself, and the Son of Man is his favorite title for himself. And it comes from the Old Testament, specifically the book of Daniel, chapter 7, refers to the Messiah, to the coming Messiah whose kingdom would have no end. Jesus is telling them, this is who I am, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And they had seen extraordinary things today. I mean, this, this is a true story that really happened in a real place with real people by a real Savior. 
And Jesus graciously heals this forgiven man. He meets his greatest need, the forgiveness of sins. And then he heals his broken body, and the man picks up his mat, and he goes home. And Jesus provides a clear sign for the Pharisees and for all who were crowded into that house that he's the Savior. See, it's not just that he says, your sins are forgiven you, but he heals this man. This paralyzed man gets up and goes home. I mean, that's a direct fulfillment of prophecy we see in places like Isaiah 35, that the lame man will leap like the deer. See, Jesus, he's the Messiah. So what does this mean for us? Well, that he really and truly is the Savior that we all need. So I want you to think about this. For those of you in this room who are not yet followers of Jesus, you know, what do you really believe is your greatest need? What can be greater than to have your sins forgiven? Jesus says, come to me, come to me, my faith. Friends, now, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Stop trusting in your perceived morality, in your perceived goodness. Stop trusting in that and letting that keep you from coming to Christ. You've got nothing to offer to God. You've got nothing to bargain with him. Come palms up empty-handed. Trust in Christ. He won't turn you away. Stop thinking that that sin, whatever that sin is, whatever that sin pattern is, that it's so bad that there's no way that you can come to Christ. Friends, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in your heart, so come to Christ. Today's the day of salvation. Do not delay. Come to him. Come palms up empty-handed. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, then I hope that this, this keeps reminding you of the good news that you and I need to hear over and over and over again. You know, that as we prepare to come to this table, that, that the gospel, it, it, it's, it's, it's not only good news, it's true. It's true good news. That Jesus is a real Savior. And just as you're going to hold the cracker and you're going to taste the, the sweetness of, of the cup, that's real, that Jesus is a real Savior. He really did take on human flesh. He really did live a perfect, sinless life. He really did suffer. He really did bleed. He really did die. The tomb really was empty. And he really is sitting at God the Father's right hand in heaven, ruling and reigning over us. And he really is coming again. That all of this is true. So as you prepare to come to this table, I want to read to you something that uh, a pastor in the PCA who's now with Jesus that he once wrote, and I think it's very fitting. He says, only Christ can lift our burden of sin. He lifts the burden of our external sins and of the deeper ones too. Our hypocrisy, lack of love, and betrayals in relationships. He lifts the burden of our sin of being committed to going our own way and ignoring God's purposes for us. Jesus bore the penalty that we deserved for our sins as he hung on the cross under God's wrath for us. But when he rose from the dead, his resurrection was the sign and seal that Christ's sacrifice was satisfactory to the Father. On the cross of Christ, the human problem of sin was solved for all who believe once and for all 
And this is why we wait for him with an eager eye, the one we love, because he lifted the burden. All the rot in our lives, our troubled conscience, the oppression, the scorn of others is all gone. We are free. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Dear friends, if only we believed that. If only we believed it and we began to pray in light of it and read our Bibles in light of it and seek to obey Christ in light of it and we're quick to to confess our sin and acknowledge it in light of this truth, in light of the the goodness of God's grace for us, if we began to, to make our decisions and set our calendars and our plans and our priorities in light of these truths, if we began to to treat one another differently in light of this. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are common everyday, everyday ordinary elements that we set apart for the ministry and the mystery of this holy sacrament. Lord, please help us now in these next few moments of silence to prepare our hearts to come to this table.